death and taxes. Most of us give attention to one, but few of us want to talk about the other. Leonardo da Vinci, in his last will and testament, began with these words, duly considering the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time. Considering the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time. How often do we think about death? What is it about life and death? Is this all there is, or is there something more? Is there something much more? That's the question. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We've been working our way through this ancient letter that is as up-to-date as today's websites. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a troubled church in the city of Corinth, and we've dealt with many of the problems that that church has manifested. And one of the themes that continues to show up is the distinction between wisdom and folly, and a misunderstanding of what wisdom is, and a misapprehension of the idea of what is foolish or what is folly. Often what looks like wisdom is folly to God. And often what looks like foolishness in the world around us is God's wisdom. If you don't grasp that fact, you won't understand and apply the book of 1 Corinthians. But more to the point, if you never grasp that fact and that reality, you'll have trouble in life. Because you will always be seduced away by that which looks appealing. It looks appealing because the world system presents it as appealing. It looks appealing because our flesh, our sinful flesh that we still carry around, it is seduced and drawn away by that which is flashy, that which is, looks like it's the way to go. It looks like wisdom for life. And yet, in the ultimate eternal perspective, the evaluation of the only one that matters, the evaluation of the God of heaven, is that that's foolishness. And one of the things we find in our text this morning is that what apparently looked wise to the Corinthians was rank foolishness. It was folly as far as God is concerned. And yet perhaps we can fall into that same kind of trap. Now, the specific issue of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, most of you likely know this, is the idea of the resurrection. And the argument goes like this, if, if we have no confidence in a future bodily resurrection, then we have no confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that's clear in the last few weeks as we've worked our way through this important chapter is that the Word of God links the idea of our future resurrection with the past reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, you can't have one without the other. And yet, for some reason or another, there were members of the Corinthian church that had imbibed the wisdom of their world, and they said, you know, the future doesn't really matter. The idea of a bodily resurrection, that's not important. What matters is the here and now. And so Paul is writing to address those issues. And so follow along in the Word of God with me in 1 Corinthians 15. And to give us some sense of context, we'll back up to verse 20. And we'll read down this morning through verse 34, but we'll give us a, a reminder of the context from last Sunday's message, and we'll finish with verse 34 this morning. So as I read, beginning in verse 20, I remind you as I do every week, this is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now this morning's text. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily, every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Does what we believe about doctrinal specifics really matter? What you believe about life, what you believe about death, what you believe about a resurrection, does it make any difference in your day-to-day life? Well, this text says that it absolutely does. That you and I are able to trace attitudes and choices, choices that are either wise or foolish in the broadest scheme of things. You and I should be able to trace those choices to what we believe about what is called in verse 1, in the first several verses of this chapter, that which is of prime importance, the gospel, and also what we believe about the future. Paul here has reasoned from Old Testament scriptures and from eyewitnesses that Jesus' resurrection really happened. And from that, he says, our future resurrection will happen as well. And he has shown how this is central to the gospel, including God's grand scheme of redemption. The gospel is not just about you and me having our sins forgiven, but it's about God accomplishing his grand plan in history and for the cosmos. But in verse 29, he circles back to one more example of what John Calvin calls absurdities regarding the denial of the resurrection. Our friend uh, S. Lewis Johnson suggests that as the apostle is writing, remember the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but human men, very, very realistic, very flesh and blood men were used by God to write the scriptures. And S. Lewis Johnson says, as he was unpacking chapter 15, it looks like here Paul had taken a coffee break. It looks like he's given these arguments. He's talked about the gospel. He's talked about the, the influence of all of it, the importance of all of it, uh, the, the, what you give away if you give away the gospel. And then, as we saw last week, he's got this broad scheme that the resurrection matters even in the scope of what God is going to do in wrapping up history. 
And then it's like he went away for a coffee break and he came back and he said, oh, I forgot one thing. There's one more absurdity for you who believe, supposedly, that there is no future resurrection of your body. For those of you who have said that what really matters is right now. Right now is all that really matters. And for those of you who are living this way, for those of you who believe that, the influence of that belief is shown in your life every day, and it's ridiculous. And he says, for the sake of argument, he says one more thing, and we see that in verse number 29, and essentially he's saying this, oh, and by the way, what about those baptisms on behalf of the dead? What about baptisms on behalf of the dead? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've ever read this verse before. I don't know if you've studied it, but that's an odd concept to be baptized on behalf of dead people. Precisely what does that mean? One popular preacher said, the apostle here opens a can of worms and Bible students have been looking for a lid ever since. (laughs) Look again at verse 29. It says, otherwise, what do people, notice he doesn't say, what do you But evidently there were some. What do people mean, verse 29, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? And that's a very accurate translation of Greek. On behalf of. To be baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And essentially the reasoning is this. Paul's saying, if you don't believe in a future resurrection, then why do some of your people go around And they're engaging in this ritual of being baptized on behalf of people who are now dead. What difference does it make? It shows that in some sense, they still anticipated, they still hoped for a bodily resurrection. But that still doesn't answer the question, what on earth is baptism for the dead? Let me give you three possibilities. There are 30 or 40 at least. You don't want to hear them all. Believe me, you don't want to sit through them all. But let me give you three possibilities. Here's the first. And this is what is sometimes applied and believed about this odd verse. The first option is that baptism for the dead is a vicarious kind of evangelistic baptism for someone who has already died. In other words, it's essentially magic. It's that someone has died and you're afraid they're not a believer, and so you go and you're baptized on their behalf, and somehow that's supposed to save them. It was superstitious. And let me just tell you, that is not what was happening here. I'll tell you why I believe that in a moment. It is not what was happening here. This is what is practiced in Mormonism. Most of us know this. It's practiced in Mormonism often as a, a, often as a scheme, I'll go ahead and say it, to raise money. Because you don't just walk in and be baptized, you pay in order to be baptized for the dead. But this was essentially heretical. And I agree with the conservative scholars that say if that was what was happening in Corinth, Paul would have addressed it as heresy. And you see that basically he just moves on. We'll see why he does in just a moment. But he doesn't stop and say this destroys the gospel. He doesn't stop and say that's heresy. If that was what was happening, it would have been refuted. The apostle and the word of God in his providence would not let it slide. Because listen carefully. There is no salvation apart from personal repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation after death. There is no opportunity after death. There's no second chance after death. The book of Hebrews says, For it is appointed unto every person once to die, and after this comes judgment. There's no hope. There's no promise. There's no indication at all 
that somehow, especially for the act of someone else, you can purchase salvation for someone who has died. That is a heresy, and that is not what was happening in Corinth, because if that was what was happening, at least in their vision or their view, Paul would have addressed it. Second possibility, it was vicarious baptism on behalf of believers who had died after believing, but without baptism. In other words, you're in the church, and you hear the gospel, and you trust Christ, and you're baptized, and then others trust Christ, but an epidemic hits, a pandemic, and people die, and they die after trusting Christ, but before they go through the ritual of baptism. And some believe that what the believers in Corinth were doing is they were worried about that, because those people died, even though they had professed faith in Christ, they died without being baptized. And so they were undergoing a ritual of baptism for those people who didn't have the opportunity. Now, it's perhaps possible that that was what was happening. It's not realistic. It's somewhat sentimental. It ends up basically becoming meaningless. But it's not rebuked because in and of itself it's not heretical. In fact, the point is this. If you read 1 Corinthians, if that was happening from time to time, that was the least of their problems, if that's what they were doing. And by the way, you remember, they had problems about baptism already. It's back in chapter 1. There were people who were taking pride in who baptized them. And so baptism evidently was an area where they were confused about. So it's possible, and some scholars believe that that's what was happening. Not that they were saving these people, but that if baptism was so important to them, it bothered them that they had died in faith, but without being baptized. And so somehow they thought, well, let's get baptized for them. Perhaps, but I don't think so. I think what was happening in the baptism for the dead was it was not vicarious, it was not substitutionary, but it was in honor of or in, in reference to. It was in memory of deceased believers who had died and those believers who had died had so influenced, maybe even in their death, they had so influenced pagans that they had come to faith in Christ. And when they got baptized, either through a statement they made or the, the, their baptism testimony, they said, you can hear them say it, I'm being baptized on behalf of this person who changed my life because he lived for Jesus and I found the gospel. And they understood their baptism. It was a personal baptism. It was a personal profession but it was in honor of, in reference to, these believers who have now died, but this person has now come to faith, and they want to make a statement about their appreciation for that believer who is now deceased. I think likely that's what's happening here. Paul's point is this. He doesn't refute the practice. He doesn't condone the practice. He raises it by saying, what's up with that if you don't believe in a future resurrection? What's the point? Baptism is surely not everything, but it's not nothing. Baptism matters. Baptism is important, but why would you be baptized in acknowledgement of someone that you think essentially is gone? That there's not going to be any opportunity for you to be reunited with them. That once a person dies, a person dies, according to your theology, Paul is saying. So why are there people going around and acknowledging these other people who have already died when you say that all that matters is life here? You see, there was a, a functional inconsistency that was going on. The way they were living their lives, it, it didn't really measure up. What they said they believed and what they practiced sometimes were two different things. Now, 
Baptism for the dead. Likely, this was the root of many baptismal errors that came along later. And we won't talk about those this morning. We'll just simply say this. Whatever this practice was, it was either odd or it was unnecessary. I don't think it was heretical because Paul would have refuted it. But the point that Paul's making is that your practice shows what you believe. Your doctrine manifests what you believe both for good and for bad. There was this logical inconsistency. Doctrinal confusion leads to absurd inconsistencies. The Old Testament says that God put eternity in our hearts. We know there's more to life. We cling to life and we anticipate the possibility, the reality that we will live again. This is part of the way God has designed us. And so he uses this strange and odd practice to highlight the fact that their living was inconsistent. Now, if there's going to be a future resurrection of the dead, if you and I are going to be resurrected from the dead, what does that look like? I'd like to know that. And Paul addresses that in the next text. So we'll be talking about that next Sunday. But first, Paul addresses his primary concern that right doctrine matters. Right doctrine matters. And what we're going to see, we're going to see the practical implications for the Corinthians of denying or forgetting or neglecting the future resurrection. Let me show you what I mean. Two broad points this morning. The first is this. Right doctrine will help you embrace wise sacrifices for eternity. Right doctrine will equip you and help you embrace sacrifices that are wise and that are focused on eternity. That's what Paul goes on to argue. And he uses he, he uses himself and the apostles, the other apostles, as examples. So look with me again in verse 30. Notice what he says. He says, why are we in danger every hour? In other words, if there's no resurrection, why are we in danger all of the time? Why are we living this way? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. Can I just stop right there? What he's getting ready to say is, look, I've got skin in the game because I've invested in you. It's not just that I have trouble everywhere I go, but part of my trouble was invested in you. But he also says, I have pride in you. Now, I I just don't know if I were the lead pastor of the first church of Corinth, I don't know how proud I would be of my church. And yet he who had planted the church, he took delight in the church of God. We've said it over and over again. All of us can point to examples where the church has hurt us. And some people are embittered by the church. And you'll hear this. You hear it quite often today. Well, I really love Jesus. I just don't have any use for the church. That doesn't work. Paul the Apostle cared about this church. And you recognize the church is the bride of Jesus. It's like saying, well, I really like you, but I can't stand your wife. It doesn't work that way. And so he has pride in them. He acknowledges that. Despite chapters 1 through 14, he says, I take pride in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you through the gospel. And so he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Beasts? 
at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know what he's saying? He's saying if your philosophy about resurrection is true, then what are we doing? And we ought to just party on. I mean, I mean what's, what's the point? Earlier, back in verse 19, he said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right here, he's saying, we're of all the people most to be mocked, most to be laughed at. Because look at the way we're living our lives. We're living our lives not for the here and now, but we're living our lives for eternity. And we're making sacrifices. And those sacrifices are wise in the eternal perspective, though temporally they're foolish. And if this is all there is, then those sacrifices are foolish as well. That's his argument. He wrote this book from Ephesus. He spent three years there. His ministry ended, likely after he wrote this book, his ministry ended there with a citywide riot. There were always conflict followed Paul. But he talks about the beasts of Ephesus. Do you see that in verse 32? There's a lot of discussion about were these, you recognize this is during the Roman Empire when they would throw slaves or throw criminals in the arena, they would throw them to wild beasts. It was entertainment. This was HBO in the Roman, Roman world. Is what people did for entertainment. And so a lot of people have struggled with this. Does that mean that Paul was a gladiator? Does that mean that Paul got thrown into the arena? And it's an interesting discussion. Let me just give you a, a quick overview of it. Uh, typically, if you got thrown in the arena, you typically didn't survive. So it's likely that this is metaphorical. Uh, it's not referenced in 2 Corinthians later on when Paul addresses all of his sufferings. Luke doesn't record it in Acts. I would think that if Paul had ended up in arena and somehow had survived beasts, that would be important to put in the book of Acts, but it's not there. And so likely what Paul's doing is he's using this concept metaphorically. And why would that surprise us? In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about the dogs of the circumcision in 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about the devil is a roaring lion. He talks about in Acts 20 that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And by the way, does anyone remember Genesis 3 where the evil one shows up as a serpent? These are the beasts. The beasts are the false teachers. The beasts are the critics. The beasts are the ones that are always nitpicking the truth. The beasts are the ones that are denying and fighting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the point is this. From the Damascus Road to his eventual beheading in Rome, Paul was never out of danger. And his point is, what was the point? What's the point of this? If this is all there is. Essentially, Paul's saying, why don't I pay more attention to my portfolio? Why don't I finally get that timeshare that Ryan was talking about last week? Why, why don't I chase after pleasure? What, why don't I settle down and get a family? Why don't I start a business? Why don't I make money? Why don't I enjoy physical pleasures here? Why am I living a life that it represents sacrifice for eternity if eternity doesn't matter? He's saying, what was the point? Suffering what... Some have called a long obedience in the same direction. Hardships for Jesus, they are meaningless if this life is all there is. And he and the apostles, 
Don't make a mistake. Because he uses the apostles for their extreme trouble and suffering, they are only prototypes. Because the New Testament says that all who live godly will suffer persecution. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And the question is, if this is all there is, then why? Why make any wise sacrifices toward eternity if there's no eternity? That's not a wise sacrifice. That's what kind of sacrifice? A foolish sacrifice. And this is Paul's reasoning here. Spurgeon said it this way, There is no exception to this rule. From the master down to the last disciples, it is a procession of cross-bearers. That's Christianity. To pick up your cross and follow Jesus daily. It's not a call to a comfy life. It's not a call to temporal success. God may give us that. God may give us times of blessing. God may give you resources. God may give us, and He does. He gives us blessings in life. But if you think that's what Christianity is about, you're missing it. Because we're living for eternity. And we're to be making wise sacrifices, wise investments in eternity. It is worth it all. Because this life is not all there is. So let me challenge you. Are you merely living for today? Or are you living with purpose for eternity? Again, look at the end of verse 32. Glance at it again. Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the philosophy of hedonism. It's the philosophy that the highest good consists in present enjoyment despite the warnings of God. One scholar says that the Corinthians were influenced by this idea. We've talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The idea that matter doesn't matter. That all the created order is evil. And so it doesn't matter what you do. You just enjoy yourself. Because there won't be any resurrection. That everything here that's touched with physicality is useless if not evil, and therefore matter doesn't matter, so just live the way you want to live. One commentator says, these are spiritually myopic people who only consider their physical existence. And this wasn't new in the history of Israel. Listen to what happened in Isaiah 22. This is where that quote comes from that Paul has just read or written. In Isaiah 22, the people of Israel were under judgment. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, what'd they do? Joy and gladness. Killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. And they were saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And God had called them to repentance, essentially Can I put it this way? God had called them to recognize there's something greater than tomorrow. And they were saying, tomorrow we die, so we're just going to enjoy today. And I want to suggest to you, without being unkind, that that is the functional philosophy of 98.9% of everybody that you'll ever meet. I'm just, I know the grave is coming. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to labor over it. And I'm just going to find as much enjoyment now as I possibly can. This was solely under the sun kind of living. By the way, Jesus described this. Uh, We'll come back here to 1 Corinthians 15, but would you turn with me to Luke? 
Let's look at what our Lord Jesus said about this. Luke chapter 12. Look with me in Luke chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1108. 1108. Luke chapter 12. You remember this story that Jesus told. In Luke 12, Jesus addresses this exact same issue. By the way, look for the concept of wisdom versus folly. Wisdom versus folly. Luke 12, beginning verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? How's that for shutting a questioner down? Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. See the words? Eat, drink, and be merry. And look at what Jesus says. But God said to him, fool. Look, if I think you're foolish, that's a problem you can deal with and you can dismiss me. When God says to you, fool, you better wake up. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. By the way, this has nothing to do with working hard. It has nothing to do with saving wisely. It has nothing to do with providing for your family. All of those things are perfectly legitimate. The question is really where your heart is. Where, where you're vesting your hope and your value. I hope it's not in your 403B or whatever the name of it is, 401K, because right now you're in bad shape, right? All of us. Sinking our roots too deep in this world, not living with eternity in view. This is wisdom versus folly. And this is what Paul is trying to wake up the Corinthians about, that their belief about the resurrection was influencing the way they were living life. So in this text, right doctrine helps you embrace wise sacrifices for eternity. That's an exhortation. But it goes beyond that because there's also a warning back in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at it with me. Because right doctrine will also help you avoid foolish choices today. It will help you embrace wise sacrifices for eternity, but also it will help you avoid foolish choices for today. Because here's the point. Inaccurate, inadequate views of the resurrection, it led them to defective living. Their doctrine caused them to live defectively. And so look at the warning in verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Literally, that is, do not wander. It's, it's a mental wandering. It's, it's a, a word in the New Testament for getting off course. 
It's the same word from which we get the idea of planets wandering in the sky. Don't get off course. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That was an ancient Greek proverb. Paul leverages it. He uses it. There has to be some decision, discernment here about the things you imbibe, the, the friends you have, the philosophies that they hold. Because you're looking for true wisdom. You're looking for discernment. And if you spend too much time in bad company, it will corrupt your view of life. I don't have time this morning to unpack the tension here because we're to have relationships with people in this world system. But we have to be careful that we're not influenced by them in such a way that we lose the sense of God's truth. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. In other words, come to your senses is the idea. As is right. And do not go on sinning. Let me, let me tell you what that means in the Greek where he says, do not go on sinning. Stop sinning. You say, well, that's too simplistic. I know it seems that way, but every now and then we need to be told that. Just stop. Stop loving the world. Stop embracing its wisdom, which is folly to God. Stop uncritically reading. Stop uncritically watching entertainment. Stop doing it in ways that you're influenced with false ideas that are going to affect your morals. And they're going to affect the way you live. And they're going to affect your ability to discern right and wrong. Just stop. The Westminster Confession, if I could paraphrase it, Westminster Catechism says, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the revealed will of God. That pretty much covers it. And we have to recognize that sin is an issue. And so then he just, it's as though Paul, he takes, he takes the knife and he just turns it with his, a little bit of sarcasm because at the end of verse 34 he says, for some have no knowledge of God. Why does he say that? Because they were proud of their knowledge, right? The Corinthian church, they loved wisdom. They said, we've arrived. And he uses the same word from which we get the term agnostic. It's functional agnosticism. They have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. They looked on themselves as marvelously wise, said Calvin, but they should have been ashamed. No true wisdom, sleepwalking into ruin. Now let me just recapitulate, reiterate what was happening here. There were practical implications to their weak, deficient doctrine of the future. They either didn't give thought to it, or they had adopted the philosophies of Greek dualism, the idea that all that really matters is the here and now. And it doesn't really matter so much, but it doesn't matter what you do, because the physical is all that matters, or doesn't really matter. The temporal, in the physical, you can dismiss the physical because the temporal is all we have. And so the first thing that produces is a kind of a pure materialism which led to raw hedonism, and that's hopeless living. That's back in verse 32. Let's eat, drink, and marry, be married, because tomorrow we die. doesn't matter what you do with your body. doesn't matter about sexual sin. doesn't matter about uh, ignoring the needs of the people around you. It also denigrated the importance of the flesh, and therefore it justified sexual sin. I mean, we're just an imprisoned soul. We've got this body, and it's going to rot and die and be done away with. So if you go and have sex with a temple prostitute, it doesn't really make any difference. 
Third, it removed any motivation for future judgment or responsibility. One of the things that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians is one day we'll give an account. He writes about it earlier in this letter, that there'll be an evaluation of the way we build our lives. And if you believe this life is all that matters, then you're not going to worry about giving an account to your God for the way you manage your sexuality or the way you spend your money or the way you invest your time or waste your time. That's what's happening here. You know, we live in a day in which all of us are familiar with it, and some of us have experienced it in a personal, painful way. But we live in a day in which there's a lot of emphasis on what's called deconstruction. Have you heard this word? And deconstruction in postmodernism, that's a philosophical concept. But deconstruction has moved into the church and into people that, uh, the kind of people that were raised in our church, for example. And they deconstruct their faith. Basically, they reconsider all of the doctrines that they were taught as children, all the fundamental doctrines of the gospel, which it says in 1 Corinthians, this is a first priority. But they deconstruct it. And there was a campus minister who said, here's where he's landed. When a college student comes to him and says, you know, I'm having real problems believing the virgin birth. I'm having real problems believing the Bible's the word of God. And this is a person who is already professed as a believer. He has a background in the church. And the young person says, you know, I'm really questioning whether Jesus was really the son of God. I'm really questioning the reality of the resurrection. This is how the campus minister responds. How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? Because that's what we find in the broader scope of evangelicalism. They're very, very famous people that have so-called deconstructed. They said they were a believer and they were in ministry. And now they've apostatized and they're not a believer. But then it also comes out that there's sexual sin in their life. That they've deserted their marriages. Some of them even adopted a homosexual lifestyle. You see, what drives us, what drives us is not so much the intellect... It's the passions of our flesh. Or it's a desire for a place at the table. It's, it's, it's the, the fear, you've heard of FOMO, the fear of missing out. This is the fear of being excluded. You really believe the Bible? You really believe that all people are sinners? You really believe that Jesus died for sins? You really believe that Jesus came out of the tomb? It's not so much a problem of the intellect, it's a problem of the heart. It's not so much a problem of what they think, it's a problem of what they want to do. See, it's a problem of rebellion. And Paul's saying, listen, get your doctrine straight. And I'm not suggesting, let me be clear, I'm not suggesting that if you get your doctrine right, you'll not have a problem with sin. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But I'm saying, if you've got wrong doctrine, it's going to show up in fruit in your life. So get your doctrine right, and it will help you avoid foolish choices. Now, before I move any further, as I wrap up, let me just ask the question that's been in the back of my mind all the way through 1 Corinthians. Why isn't, or 1 Corinthians 15, why isn't soul immortality enough? Have any of you wondered that? I mean, sometimes I feel like my body's wearing out before your eyes. I mean, we, we, we pray and grieve over people in our church family who are struggling with health issues. And so this esoteric idea that 
you know, this physical life doesn't matter, and we're just going to live, you know, uh, just kind of spiritually in the, in, in the ether, and we're going to go on, and the ideal from Greek philosophy, you know, the ideal is the spirit, and so that all that, that's all that matters. That sometimes is an appealing doctrine when your back is killing you. And when the doctor says, we've got to go another round of chemo. And so, why doesn't that work? Well, we're going to get there in the next couple of weeks, but I'll tell you now why it doesn't work. Because what God is doing, He is not through with this world. This world has been robbed. This world is under rebellion. God is the rightful King. He is the Creator and in his allowance of sin and rebellion, that sin and rebellion is rife in his creation. And God will not just let that go. And so what he began in Genesis 1, he will finish in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's not good enough to say, well, God just washes his hands and he says, well, that was a poor experiment. Let me throw that on the trash heap and let's just have a spiritual existence for eternity. No, 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 no. In fact, Jesus, our brother, presently has a physical body resurrected from the grave. We'll talk about it next week. But he has a body which is characteristic of humanity right now as a first fruit of our resurrection because God's not through. And you know, at the very least, what that tells you? I like this, and so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about it. The things that you appropriately, not sinfully, but the things you appropriately cherish most about this glorious world that God created, they're going to be that much more glorious in eternity. We're not just, remember from Revelation, we're not just floating in some kind of satellite through space all through eternity. God fixes this world. And the physical resurrection is part of that. So don't buy a false bill of goods that evidently some of the Corinthians bought. That how much better would it be? My body's wearing out. I have pains. I have aches. How much better would it be if we just have a spiritual eternal existence? God says, no. What sin broke, I will fix. And we will be part of it. (laughs) So that's what we have. We have a future. And this includes the good world made new. So I'm going to suggest this morning that if I took an informal survey, very few of you would say, I do not believe in the future resurrection of the body. But I think if we were honest with ourselves, we often don't think about it. We often ignore it. And sometimes subsequently we forget it. You know how to ask yourself what you really believe about this? Is what drives your emotions? What drives either your anger or your depression? What, 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 what causes overwhelming sorrow to you? And ask yourself, is that only this world? Have I forgotten what God is doing in eternity? Have I forgotten gospel promises? an important question to ask. And I know, I've already said, 
Just getting your doctrine right doesn't guarantee holiness. We're also called to love God. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to obedience. We're called to live out of gratitude. But I'm going to suggest that when your doctrine is deficient, it shows up in unhealthy ways. There's a sad folly, a sad folly as opposed to God's wisdom. There's a sad folly of living only for today. Probably most of you have heard the name Kate Spade. She was a fashion designer and licensed her, particularly her handbags. Some of you perhaps ladies even carry them. She said this about life. She said, if you're as honest and fair as you can be, not only in business but in life, things will work out. Well, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing to say. But in her mid-50s, though wealthy, successful, and famous, Kate Spade committed suicide. All the money she could have desired, all the fame anyone could have wanted, it wasn't enough. Compare her to Job. We find his words in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed. And let me just stop. You remember Job's circumstances. I mean, the troubles you and I have, real and significant, they pale in comparison to Job's losses. And the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that if the only thing Job had to look forward to was that life, Please forgive me. It sucks to be Job. But look at what he says. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, that's important, in my flesh I shall see God. Wait a minute. Your skin has been destroyed, but one day in your flesh, you see what he's anticipating? A future physical resurrection. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That engages and embraces wise sacrifice for eternity, and it helps you avoid foolish church choices today. Here's your takeaway. Resurrection hope turns empty living into purposeful living. Resurrection hope turns empty living into purposeful living. Father, would you do a work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit? We are fickle people, so often enamored by this world and its so-called wisdom that in the broadest picture is nothing but folly. And those things which the world calls foolish, you call the wisdom of God. Help us not live empty, superficial, shallow lives chasing after pleasures here. Help us not live merely for this world, but help us live wholly engaged in this world, but living for the next with purpose that extends beyond time and the grave. 
This will make a difference, Father, in the way we invest our time, in the way we use our money, in the way we fight and slay sin, in the way we serve others in the church. All of these things will be affected when we recognize that we are eternal people, not merely rooted and grounded in time alone. Do this work in each of our lives as needed, and we'll thank you for your kind Holy Spirit who is our comforter, our teacher, our guide, and for your holy and glorious word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us remember today all that we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.